Mike Flanagan once again proves himself to be one of, if not the most, talented horror auteurs working today. While we will confess that we weren't quite sold after the first episode, by the end we had to laugh that we ever had any doubts that Flanagan would deliver yet another deeply haunting, character-driven story filled with love, loss, and this time, the battle so many face when it comes to their faith. The girls who cried be horror. Hi, y'all, and welcome to another mini set of The Girls Who Cried Be Horror. This time, we will be covering uh, Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass, if you couldn't gather from the hints I was giving in that opening. Um, and this is for our next Bone Chilling Binge episode, mini And before anybody comes for us, which they won't, but in my head, you know, I imagine. <laughs> um, because the only two other Bone Chilling Bone Chilling Binge mini we've done were also Mike Flanagan shows. But you know what? I just need everyone else to step their pussy game up. And then we'll give them a bone-chilling binge mini-set. Okay? Yeah. I mean, clearly we have a very specific taste. Um, yeah. And there hasn't really been any other horror series that I've seen in the last year or two that have, like, really jumped out at me as something like, oh, my God, I have to talk about. Like, I watch yeah. a lot of horror series, but nothing quite to the caliber that Mike Flanagan produces. Yeah. And I would honestly say that, like... I wouldn't say in general, but especially I feel like in the past year, like, I've been watching way more movies than I have TV. I feel like I'm behind on just TV in general. And then Mm -hmm. also, this one's again comes down to the fact that, like, I could watch a horror show and be like, that was fucking baller. And then you could watch it and be like, I didn't like it. But also, it's also a much more big commitment for me to watch a whole show and be like, Alex, you have to watch this. And then she has to sit down and watch 10 episodes. So it's just like the alignment of everything doesn't always come together. Yeah, but you know I will because... Oh, you I, will. But... I watch everything. I mean, I am looking forward to the new Chucky series. So maybe if we both watch that and we like it, who knows? We can. I really do want to watch again. it. I really want to watch it. Um, As a Chucky stan. Yeah. But I mean, anyways. we have our whole Chucky episode. It would just be fitting. Yeah, so, you know, plug another episode. If you've never listened to our Tangential Terror uh, mini-sode after our Dolls main episode in which we covered the entire Child's Play franchise, that was a good time. Um, So definitely check that out if you've got fucking hours to kill. Um, But let's get down to it. So this is the third television series that Mike Flanagan has done. Mm -hmm. Um, It is also the third one he has done as a Netflix original series. Mm -hmm. Um... And I just want to say off the bat, I just, something I really appreciate about him, I mean, on top of the fact that this motherfucker is just constantly working, he's always got something like, you know, after this comes out, what's the next thing going to be? It's going to be like the Midnight Club or whatever the fuck it's going to be. Like, it's always something ready to go. Um, But I appreciate, especially when it comes to television, I mean, you could say the same about movies with sequels, but that like, he never like, you know, runs anything into the ground. Yeah. Like, he's like, this is the story I want to tell. I will decide how long I need to tell it, and when it's done, it's done. Because even Bly Manor, like, it was like, yes, it's the same universe of the haunting universe, because it's another house based on, like, a book, slightly, whatever, but it's completely separate. Mm-hmm. And then when people after that were like, when are we going to get another season of, like, the haunting of what? And he was like, mm, I don't know, because... Probably never. I honestly. have nothing else to say with that. Like, yeah. you know. And I deeply fuck with that because as somebody that like yeah you you watch shows and they end you're like oh it was so good I want more I also very much though am someone that will get really pissed off I, I would rather you leave me being like devastated because I'm like oh I'll never have a show as good as that again and there's no more episodes rather than it being a crisp immaculate one season 
And then you're like, and now we're getting renewed for two more seasons. Which, you know, granted, sure, it keeps people in the industry employed. It gives people jobs. That's all great. But when it comes to, like, the integrity of a story, I really appreciate that, like, that is most important to him. Yeah, and I feel like Mike Flanagan is very rare in that he is both an incredible, like, writer and storyteller and also somebody who knows when to stop and when to, like, say, okay, like, we're done here. Because I feel like you usually only get one of them. You usually get someone who, like, is incredible and makes a story and a show that you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. But they fucking, you know kick it into the ground until you're like oh my god there's 12 seasons of this I don't want to do this anymore or it's a show that like does only do one or two seasons but it's like you know mediocre or it's like it's fine so it's very rare for me to find a show that I find to be so incredible but then also like that's it and it's just this like beautiful perfectly Mm -hmm. wrapped up little gift for me and I do want more because it's so good but I also like deeply respect that he's like no if I do more I might ruin it and this is it at the end of the day now, especially with the access we all have to streaming, like, and all this shit, it's just, like, if I really got to a state where I was like, fuck, I need more of it, I can just watch the perfect thing again from right. the beginning, <clears throat> yeah. rather than being like, oh, I'm getting more of it, but a lesser version of it because they're dragging out a story that doesn't need to go any further. Exactly, yeah. Um, But before we proceed any further very quickly, mm-hmm. at this point... We haven't spoiled anything. If you're going to listen any further, there will be spoilers. You know, we put off doing this mini so until late in October because when Midnight Mass came out, many of the people involved were very much asking, like, you know, don't spoil it for people who haven't streamed yet, which at the end of the day, even if we did this right when it came out, you don't have to listen to the episode. But highly recommend you check out the series. It's only seven episodes, I yep. think. Yeah. Seven. Um, it's so good. It's October still. I mean, it's any time of year you could watch it, but... Don't listen any further and spoil things for yourself. Come back and discuss with us when you're done. Uh, now let's move forward. Um, so I guess a good place to start with this is that obviously Haunting of Hill House, the big, I feel like, overarching themes were like mourning and lo- like I guess both Blind Manor had the, the sense of like mourning and loss, but it was more so like familial based. Mm-hmm. Hill House, that was like kind of the overarching theme theme of family and then blind manor the overarching theme was the theme of like love whether it be like everlasting love toxic love lost love all of that and i really enjoy that that's something else that mike flanagan does i mean in general he always has those deep cuts he's gonna make you fucking hurt emotionally but like having a theme and this one interesting is you know and i know it definitely comes from like a personal place for him and his upbringing and stuff like that and i know it's a story he's wanted to tell for such a long time um But obviously the heavy focus is about faith and religion and how that, you know, is interwoven into our lives for better or for worse. And how there's definitely some people that, you know, look to it as a beacon of hope and it really helps them. But at the same time, there's people that use it um, for their own, you know, agenda and to do horrible things and use as an excuse. Um, And, you know, things that masquerade as faith that aren't and Mm -hmm. they're very dangerous. Obviously, in this case on the show, spoiler, it's a fucking vampire. Um, But I don't know. Did you have – so what were your feelings about the overall, like, theme of faith throughout this whole thing? I have a very complicated relationship with religion because Mm -hmm. my my dad is, like, your classic Irish Catholic man. You know, my mom – was never really very religious, but, like, she would do things because my dad did them. Um, So I grew up going to Sunday school. Um, I went to a Catholic high school. Um, I think my college was also a Catholic college. But, like, 
I never enjoyed it. I always felt like very st- like stifled when I was when I when I was in a church. Like I w- always felt very uncomfortable and very like I don't know. Just the environment has always been like very icky to me. I don't like it. I don't like the institution of the church. I believe everybody can have their own faith. I mean, I am very spiritual. I don't necessarily believe in like a man in the sky, but I don't like the institution of the Catholic church specifically. Um, So there were a lot of moments in this show where like I felt uncomfortable in moments where I don't even know if I was meant to, but I was just like this just like whole space just like makes me feel weird and gross. Um, But I think it's something that's very, very important to a lot of people. Um, And I think there's a lot to be said for the themes that he explores here. I mean, like you were saying, I think one of my biggest issues with religion as like a construct is just the fact that people use it to kind of justify their actions. And Mm -hmm. so many things that happen in this world that are horrible. People say, I did it for God. I did it because of this or that. And it's always like, it ties back to religion and, I just, it seems hypocritical to me. It's very frustrating. I mean, we have a character here, Bev, in this show, who I think is like the epitome of everything that I do not like about religious institutions. Um, Yeah. But I think just, so for me, just in and of itself, religion is like a scary topic. So, I mean, starting from there and having that as a jumping off point, like, yeah, you've got me because I already like have these feelings towards it. When I started watching it, I was like, I don't know, because I went in completely blind, as I try to do with most horror things. And I was like, I don't know if this is going to be like, you know, similar to like Haunting of Hill House, where it's going to be like demons and all these like creatures, or if we're just going to have like an existential drama, because it could go either way. And honestly, he tied both in, which Mm -hmm. so good. Kudos to him. Um, So yeah, I mean, I I am not really a religious person. and I find it very frightening in a lot of ways. Um, and I think, I think this show did a really good job of scaring me in very, very particular, specific ways to myself. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on? I mean, you had so many things that I feel like my mind was was turning, and I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I think one thing you brought up when you're talking about you know feeling uncomfortable in scenes that even maybe necessarily aren't supposed to be quite yet the scary scenes or whatever, and I think. that is intentional because obviously you have the scenes that are very scary with the angel that is really a vampire but like because like you're so blinded by faith you've convinced yourself and you're falling into this trap and that whole huge thing like that is obviously like frightening and like you know a metaphor for like things that obviously the church does where they're like they masquerade like this is you have to do this for God or like it's what it's written in the Bible when it's really just like their agenda for hate. But even scenes, and I think it comes back to, unfortunately, a lot of the way that religion over time has been manipulated and changed for, you know, harming groups of people, that even when there's scenes of just like, oh, this is a small community and we all go to church on Sunday, in general, like, there's nothing wrong with that. And I guess, and I'm sure to some people, and like, in theory, like, oh, what a beautiful thing, a community comes together and blah, blah, blah. But I, too, you have that uneasy feeling of like, oh, fuck no. Mm-hmm. I would not be in that church. I don't know what the, like, no, those people scare me. And they're not even doing anything yet. But you're so unsettled. And it comes back to the real world stakes of, like, because unfortunately there are a lot of people that do that. And that's what I think is the really sad thing in general about religion. But also what I feel like, to a degree, 
if not fully, Mike Flanagan is trying to say with all this, because this does not feel like a show to me. Because I remember I was seeing, I saw a few things online when I was watching it. There's only people that were like, listen, I'm like very religious. I'm like, you know, very devout to my faith. And I'm not offended by anything that I see in Midnight Mass. Like, they're like, because I get what you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Well, then I, don't I, saw, think he, I don't think he's disrespectful in any way. No, 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 no. I mean, in general, it's just like, because... I think the point is what he's saying is that he's not overtly saying religion is bad. Mm-hmm. He's not even overtly saying Christianity or Catholicism or whatever the fuck it is in this, you know, is bad. He's saying truly what we've already been saying that just like the way that certain people choose to manipulate that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then they become like, you know, they go beyond being a preacher and now all of a sudden like they are the eyes, ears, mouth of God directly and they're making all the rules. That's when it becomes dangerous. Because I personally, kind of similar to you, um, growing up, yes, I had Irish Catholic dad. Um, My mom was also um, not Irish Catholic or anything, but like, you know, we would all go to church for a while on Sunday mornings. And then the kids, me and my two siblings, we had to go to... For a while, it was, like, Sunday school, and then when you got older, it would be on, like, Tuesday nights, which sucked so much fucking ass because you would go to school all fucking day. I mean, all that sucks no matter when you do it. You go to school all fucking day, and then at, like, 7 p.m., we had to drive to downtown Albany to go to fucking Blessed Sacrament Church, mm-hmm. and, like, it was actually a school during the day. It was a Catholic school, so we'd be in, like, this empty-ass fucking school at night in a random classroom watching Veggie Tales and learning about Jesus or whatever, and I was just, like you could not get a group of people that are more fucking uninterested in being here right now yeah. than these fucking like you know early high school kids um but so I grew up with it as well and I remember it's funny that you say that you're spiritual because growing up my mom at a certain point stopped going to church with us and we go on Sunday mornings and mind you we're kids we don't get that choice we get woken up and it's like get the fuck in the car we're going to church and I remember being, like, pissed. Because I was like, fucking with the church, first of all. It's so fucking boring. Like, a whole time, like, me, Bridget, and Seamus are just trying to not piss our pants. Because, like, we think that the guy up top that's, like, singing, like, is, like, so funny. Yeah. So it's, and my dad's like, shut the fuck up. And we're just, like, literally, like, about to pass out because we can't laugh in church. Like, that was the best part of the whole thing. But so, then my mom just suddenly doesn't have to go anymore. And I'm like, you know, I remember one time asking her, like, why don't you have to fucking go to church? Like, why don't you go to church anymore? And she was like, because, like, you know, some of you agree of, like, I feel like my relationship with faith and God is different than, you know, what's going on at the church. Like, I feel that I'm more, like, spiritual. And at the time, I was young. I was like, what a fucking crock of shit. Like, <laughs> oh, you're spiritual? That's your fucking excuse for not having to go to church? Like, okay, then I'm spiritual. Can I not go to church? And it wasn't until I got older that I kind of completely got what she meant, where it is just, like, personally, like, I... I believe that there's something after death. I don't quite know what it is. Um, I believe that there maybe is some sort of higher power of some degree. Um, but yeah, and even if I was like fully like, because here's another story, y'all. We're going to go on tangents with this religion thing. So get ready. <laughs> when I was going to religious ed, get to the point when you're in whatever Sunday school that you're going to get, um, you're going to have, what is it? Oh, God. It's not communion. It's First um, communion, yeah. No, beyond First Communion. Oh, Confirmation. Confirmation. Um, gets to that point. And they just holy fucking prep for it. And it's just like, y'all, enough. It's too much. Tell me about it. I had to do it. But so the time came that I was going to have to do it. So when we'd go to school, like uh, in the Sunday schools or whatever, like every class would be prepping for that. And I remember I got to the point where I was like, and right before this, in general, I was having my own kind of like internal. It wasn't like a huge moment. Like I didn't feel like heavily conflicted about it. But I was like, yeah, I don't really, you know, feel that, that this isn't. 
this isn't touching me in a way where I feel so spiritually moved that I'm like, yeah, I want to take a step and really become a part of the church permanently, even though nothing is permanent. It's all just, you know, words. Um, but my brother had just come out like a year prior. He had gotten communion. And it's funny enough, the woman that ran a religious ed, I can't remember her name. It's probably for the best. He was very close to her. Um, she was like a shorter, like little rotund lady. Um, very sweet, but also very religious, very by the books. So she didn't know he was gay because at this point he was like gone. He'd gone off to college. And I remember being like, well, I know that like the church fucking hates gay people, whether they want to say it or not. So I don't really want to, in general, whether my brother was gay or not, want to be a part of that. But especially now that my brother literally just came out. So I remember I told my mom and dad, I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to get confirmed and they were like you know fucking whatever they were like okay well then if you don't want to do it I know I'm painting my parents as like such assholes right now I don't mean to but like they're like if you don't want to do it then you have to like go in yourself and like tell her to her face that you're not going to get confirmed and something you know about me growing up is that even in general now I fucking hate authority and at any opportunity even usually over the most dipshit like menial things like I'll be like I'll do it I'll fucking say it to their face I don't give a fuck um, like, I, I got kicked out of fucking school, um, senior, I say kicked out, it wasn't that extreme, but, like, pretty much kicked out for the day of school, um, senior year because I wore a wig on Halloween, even though they told us not to, and then I had a, a standoff with the principal. As I said, like, shit that isn't life or death, but I'm like, I don't give a fuck about your authority. Anyways, I went in and I told her, I was like, yeah, I don't feel like it's for me. She, like, pulled me aside, we had this whole conversation, and then, you know, she's talking me, like, oh, we accept gay people, and I was like oh, like, that's news to me. And then, of course, she's like, you know, one of my closest friends is gay. Like, we just, you know, ask that they don't act upon it. And I remember, like, being like, what does that mean? I was like, this shit's crazy. This oh not but of course, in the moment, I'm like, right, no, right, uh-huh. And then I remember I was just like, yeah, you know, you're not changing my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm good, you know, yeah. peace and love to y'all. I'm not going to do this. And I remember her being like, well, now you have to be careful because essentially in her mind, like, literally she was like, be careful because you don't want to get, like, sucked up into cults verbatim like being like you're gonna get if you don't get um confirmed in the catholic church the next step is going to a cult i am gonna say a ballsy thing which is i think you escaped the cult well (laughs) i'm gonna wrap this back around to midnight mass stuff because in general i feel like when the vampire shit begins to enter into this small community's like church community it becomes cult-esque in the sense of, like, everyone in the town must do it. Like, they, like, start, um, the sheriff, Raul, I cannot think of his last name, the actor. Coley? Coley, yeah. I don't Um, don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but. They use, I I believe they use he, they pronouns. um, Okay. By the way. Um, but, like, their character is the sheriff, and I believe he's Muslim, Yep. Um, and then, like, there's a whole, there's a great scene where they're in the school and they don't want, um, like, the Bible and Bible passages being taught in the school. And fucking Bev, the worst fucking character. This woman is a fucking god-tier actor because the way that she just unlocks, like, primal fucking rage in everyone watching it. You, like, want this woman dead. And you and you have to remember, like, this woman is just an actress. Well, because she's she, selling she, it. The way that she speaks and the way that she delivers all of her lines, it feels so genuine to who she is. And so, like, it's so easy to kind of get lost in her character and be like, that's who she is. Because it's just, like, it's just so spot on that I fucking hate her in every way. Well, I remember... um, I love her. 
when me, you, and co-host of the Old Kid Movies podcast, which by the time this episode, many has come out, we have been featured on their podcast. You guys should check it out. We did Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. But co-host of that, Trevor, we were hanging out and we were talking about the show. And I remember saying, like, it's one thing to play, like, a bitchy, you know, mean villain character and do a, a you know good job or whatever. Like, if you're, like, inherently, like, I'm the big, you know, superhero, like, villain or whatever or like I'm the bitchy like teen girl like those are like you know such stereotypes it feels like that like you can play it well but like you and I could be like yeah I don't like your character your character's a bitch she's mean he's the worst whatever but like something about like having real talent with this to like truly unlock rage where you feel at points where you're like I have to fucking turn the tv off like I'm gonna come through the tv and kill this bitch like it is unreal in the best way, in the worst way and best way, in the worst way that, like, I fucking hate her, but in the best way that it's so effective and she's doing a great job. Um, I digress on Bev. But, um, so, yes, when the vampire comes and it becomes this whole, like, cult-like thing and, like, everybody's going to church now and then you get to the huge, which is so terrifying, climactic moment of, like, yeah, we're going to perform this huge miracle where, like, you've all, like, imbibed essentially, like, the blood of this angel, which is really the blood of, like, this ancient fucking terrifying vampire. And now when we kill you, like, instantly after taking it... Oh, no, they, they've already been taking the blood at communion for weeks, so it's in their system. Yes. F- brilliant. Fucking brilliant. And then they, like, fucking drink rat poison or some shit, mm-hmm. die, and then instantly are resurrected now as vampires. So that's when it becomes very, like, cult-esque, like, drinking the Kool-Aid. Well, it's very Jim Jones. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's... Fun fact, it's, it was not Kool-Aid. Everyone gets that wrong. It was Flavor-Aid. Flavor-Aid? What is the difference other than a brand It's knockoff. Yeah, knockoff Kool-Aid. Jim Jones they couldn't even get real fucking Kool-Aid? God, no, But, I mean, I think that moment for me is, like, was the most powerful just because it was, like, very, very on the nose of, like, I am basically saying that this church has now become a cult in, the, like, making yeah. it such a clear reference, in my eyes at least. Um, and it's so scary. And I think the thing that makes Bev so scary for me is I think the distinction between like having faith and having blind faith because I think everybody should have some kind of faith I think that's great I would never tell somebody Mm -hmm. that their faith is incorrect or wrong but when you have blind faith the way that Bev does yeah it's just a way to like make what like kind of just use the bible or use whatever teachings you've had to justify whatever you want because throughout the show anytime somebody comes at her with like an opposing view no matter how logical or reasonable they are she will then just pull out a different verse from a different book and like quote it to them and then say well here this is my like response to that and she does it at the end when she has been following monsignor pruitt like hands and knees on the ground like she worships this man and then the second he turns on her or does not agree with her she flips her entire perception of him because well i'll just pick i'll pick and choose from the Bible, what makes sense exactly. to me right now. And yeah. I think that's my issue with a lot of religion and a lot of people who kind of just like follow the scriptures and the books just blindly because right. you have to have the ability to, you know, hear other people's perspectives and adjust your views. Mm. Mm. I agree completely. I think that's exactly what her character is doing. It is the whole like, you know, you get the classic and it feels very Stephen King, like the very righteous religious woman. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is all God's plan for us. And like, this is him smiting us down. It's very, 
um, The Mist, which you haven't seen The Mist yet, have you? No, oh, not Can't yet. wait till you fucking watch The Mist, girl, because it's, it's just my, not streaming, one of my, and I'm cheap. I know, it's never available. It's always on, like, fucking, like, AMC, but we don't have fucking cable. Um, But yes, so it's exactly that at first, like, doing the classic, like, nasty church lady but then yeah it becomes kind of once again it feels like that metaphor for like the people that like as you're saying like this is what the bible says this is what the bible says and then when someone counters it and says okay sure the bible says that the bible also says this what do you have to mm-hmm. say about that and then immediately it's like the backstepping i don't see that i don't hear that i was never a part of that let me go to this other thing and just like continue to use it to fuel my hatred yeah and yeah it's, it's exactly that bit um were there any performances in particular on this show because there was obviously a lot of actors that we've seen before on other Mike Flanagan projects and some new ones that you know not new actors per se but like people that have done other things there were also mm-hmm. some new actors some young actors were there any performances in general that stuck out to you um I mean I love Mike Flanagan's like you know his crew that he uses he uses throughout like all of his shows and tv his movies I mean obviously Kate Siegel is amazing I love Henry Thomas I wish that he was used a little bit more in this um and also um Raul Coley from who was in Bly Manor he plays a sheriff I thought he was excellent I would I wanted a little bit more of him I mean there's nobody on this on this that's like bad no one is a bad actor they're all amazing um I mean obviously I think I would if we're talking about just acting in general I would say that Samantha Sloyan who played Bev right hands down like the most her character um, but I think my favorite character of all of them was probably, um, what was his name? I mean, also, I have to say, Hamish Linklater as Father Paul. Mm-hmm. So fucking good. So amazing. I mean, I, I'd never seen him in anything before. I didn't really know anything about him. He was incredible. I mean, the amount of screen time that he got, and he really just, like, leads the cast in such a powerful way where, like, he he's just there's no moment where I don't believe him. I, you know who he's married to? I'm pretty sure. Who? I cannot think of her name. Maybe you'll know it. She was on American Horror Story. She's the one from um fuck. People are gonna be like, you're such an idiot for not knowing her name. But she's the one from Coven that like is obsessed with Stevie Nicks. Oh really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're married. I feel like because I was looking at his Instagram when I was watching the show, and I think they're married unless I imagined it, or they're together. Lily Rabe. Yes. Interesting. I did not know that. Um, well, that's cool. I mean, she's a great actress. Too. I really like her. Mm-hmm. But um, I would say that despite everybody being excellent, my favorite character was played by Robert Longstreet, um, which was Joe Colley. Mm-hmm. I thought that he was just – because I, I knew him from Hotskin Hill House, obviously, because he is one of the caretakers of the house. Um, and I just think his performance – in Midnight Mass is so nuanced and layered because he is dealing with the grief of paralyzing a young woman Mm -hmm. and he's dealing with a severe alcohol addiction. He's, after the second episode, unfortunately dealing with the loss of his beloved dog who was fucking murdered. Um, And, you know, there's just so much grief wrapped up in his character. But yet... You, there's still so much humanity there with him. Like, you can see that he wants to be a better person, that he is trying so hard to fight and overcome the struggles that he's dealing with. And, I mean, he does not, unfortunately, overcome everything. He has a sad end. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I just found his character 
to be the most impactful, especially in those first three episodes, because there is kind of a, a moment in the show where the tides turn, where like the first three episodes are pretty straightforward. By the end of the third episode, you get a taste of the supernatural element that is going to come into play for the rest of the show. But the first three episodes are very much just like character studies that Mike Flanagan is so good at, just like establishing the setting, establishing the atmosphere, getting to know people. Because it is a, it's a very big cast. Um, so you have a lot of characters to learn. And then starting in episode four to seven is kind of when you go into the like fucking bad out of hell crazy shit. And... In those first three episodes, I was always drawn the most to Joe. He was always the one that I wanted more scenes with. I wanted more from him. And I was so excited to see his journey when he joined the AA meetings. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yes, good. This is going to be great. And then when it got cut short, I was disappointed but not surprised. It made a lot of sense in terms of the plot. But I would say him. He's probably – he was my standout. No, no, no. I I loved him. I mean, I thought he – the I just always think about the monologue he gives in – Hill House when he's talking about like their daughter dying and all this shit and it's just so fucking powerful I think he's fantastic I thought he's fantastic in this I agree with everything you're saying I felt the same exact way where I was like something about him is so interesting to me he feels layered he Mm -hmm. yes he's like the town drunk or whatever um but there's so much more to him and we're getting it and Mike Flanagan is so fucking genius in the way that he just like He's not going to fucking handhold you. Although, I will say something about that in a second. Um, He's, when he's, like, you know, exploring who these characters are personality-wise. Like, he's going to give you tidbit by tidbit. And you're going to feel like you're getting to know them like a real person. And, yeah, when he started joining the AA meetings, I, too, felt like he was a real person. Like, I was like, oh, my God, yes, he's going to get help. And he's going to, like, grow. And he's going to heal. And maybe people in this town will, like, be able to, like, forgive him and like all this shit and I was just like I'm excited to see where it goes and maybe like when shit hits the fan he's gonna help and it that would makes that scene in which he goes to the pastor's little house and dies so much more powerful because in one hand you're seeing this crazy shit because that's episode four isn't it or is it the Mm -hmm. end of episode three yeah Yeah, it's the end of episode four four. where you're like it's like midway through I thought it was oh you're right you're right you're right um fucking crazy you're like oh things are happening now Well, also because like he dies and obviously father paul starts to drink his blood and then there's this crazy cut that mike flanagan does that i think is the scariest thing that in the entire series where it like cuts and you think it's gonna move somewhere else but it's just a different angle of them both on the ground and it like pans up from joe's legs and it has this like really sharp like musical note that goes with it and you see that Father Paul is just sucking the blood directly out of Joe's fucking head. And it is so scary. Mm -hmm. It is hands down the most disturbing image I've seen in this show. Yeah. Oh my Um, god. But yeah, I mean, that already, you're just like, oh, that's affecting me. But it's the fact that you're like, no, fuck. Mm -hmm. Of all characters, it couldn't have been fucking Bev or anybody else. Damn it. Um, But yeah, I I completely agree with that. I also think... Well, can I say one more thing real quick? Um, Well, I think also the juxtaposition of like, that scene happening, it's not directly after, but it's the the scene that you see Joe in before he goes to Father Paul's house is the scene where he is in the convenience store and he's staring at the beer in the freezer. And it, he's just like yeah. desperately trying to like pr- like stop himself from buying it. And then the sheriff comes and he's like, hey man, I'm like, am I going to have a bad night? And he's like, ugh. And he's like, fuck you beer. And he leaves. And you're like, oh yes, he's being so powerful. He's so strong. Mm-hmm. He's doing it. And it's such a, like a a rewarding like, 
redemptive moment for him to be like I know it's early on but like you did it you resisted and then the next scene for him to be in but that's so it's a perfect example of what we were talking about where it is that sense of like people that are you know in maybe more difficult positions like you think about um the young girl that is a wheelchair user mm-hmm. like who was put into a wheelchair for horrible reasons um definitely uses faith to get her through and then him especially now using going to the father yeah. as like his like AA sponsor or whatever the fuck like he's truly in a bad place in a really vulnerable time and seeking maybe even even if it isn't overtly religion but obviously tangential to that because it is the pastor who is very much a huge part of this town and their religious community and then yeah like in that moment of pure just like I need help father like I didn't do it but I'm having a rough time I want to come talk to you and that's his fatal mistake is walking into that fucking house it's so devastating but it's so perfectly written yeah. um but something i was going to say about the hand holding was that i mean for example one of the great performances and she it's funny because she she doesn't seem that important i don't say unimportant but she doesn't seem like a lead at the beginning and then they shift to her being the lead is of course mike flanagan's very talented wife kate siegel who was in blind manor was in hill house was in hush was in a bunch of his fucking shit um she becomes a lead but there's something that i i noticed with her character but it's not just her character that does it it's so many people in this and it's something Mike Flanagan does a lot and it's usually always well written and it was here it's just like unnatural is the monologuing and a lot of people that I've spoken to that have watched the show have said the same thing either that being the reason they didn't like it or like like me still fucked really hard with the show but like we're like if I have to complain about something it's gonna be this is the monologuing something I in general Mike Flanagan or not really appreciate about anything that I watch is if people act like real people then it's just much unless it's like an overt like this is a you know absurdist comedy or something like that it just makes it so much easier to believe the story if people are acting and speaking and doing things that like you can believe so when characters are like in for example Kate Siegel and um remind me of Zach Guilford Zach Guilford are sitting on the couch and they're having this conversation. It's funny because I got my mom to watch Midnight Mass. She's watching it currently and she had called me the other day to be like, oh my god, that scene where they're on the couch and they're talking about what they think about life after death. It was really powerful and she really liked it. And I was like, oh, I agree. Like every sentiment of what they were saying, like the words and like the ideas, love. I think it's really powerful. It's the fact that it is just like, we're going to sit here and I'm going to essentially monologue to the camera Mm -hmm. for like five, six minutes and then when I'm done, now it's your turn. Literally, it's like, now it's your turn. Yeah. You go for five or six minutes and monologue. Which I get that not every conversation has to be a back and forth. I don't overtly dislike monologues. It's just the fact that they are so obviously monologues. And there's so many of them. And they just, I don't know if I've just been missing them, how many there are in other works of his. But it was specifically in this show that if I really had to lodge a complaint, that's what stuck out to me. I think it was also because that shit, a lot of it felt like it was coming before episode four when we really get to the crazy shit. So you are just like, okay, we're doing a lot of character building. And now there's a bunch of monologues like Mike. Like, not that this is bad, but like, when are we going to get to the fucking juicy shit? Mm -hmm. Which we did and I was grateful for. And then everything before it made sense of why it was done. But yeah, I I had to lodge the complaint about the monologues. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a complaint a lot of people are having. And I also feel the same way because I don't, I think that there were monologues in both Hill House and Bly Manor um, and in a lot of his films, but I I don't ever, they never like stand out to me as anything other than just like 
another part of the film. Um, but for me in this, it was very overlong in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, I watched episode four is the episode where um, the the scene where they talk about death because I watched that episode and then I watched it again with Greg. Um, and when that scene started, I kind of was like, okay, I got to get through these really long monologues again. Um, because like you said, they're very well written. Everything that is being said, I agree with. And I think is like powerful and like really made me like think about what I would think would happen after death. And like, if I agree with them, if I don't agree with them, but it didn't feel the most natural in the delivery for me. I think there are moments in this show where the monologues really work for me. I think anytime the Hamish Linklater has a monologue, it works for me because he is a pastor because that's what pastors do. They preach and when you go to church, you know, you do all your songs and your readings and things, but there is a section of mass where the priest or the pastor, or whoever is giving the mass, just talks to you about mm-hmm. faith, about any kind of topic. And like, I do think at times he gets a little bit like very like crazy and like very aggressive. And like that also goes back to me feeling like uncomfortable because I'm being like yelled at essentially, but like not in like an angry way, but it feels very like. Through fire and brimstone type yeah. preaching. Um, yeah. But those work for me. And even in the monologues where like when he's in the AA meetings, those work for me because he is, again, preaching and giving advice. And when Bev goes on them, they feel like fucking crazy religious person rants. Mm-hmm. But again, they feel very natural coming out of her mouth. Like she would just be like rapid fire saying all of that. But for me, a lot of the monologues, when they're talking about, you know, death and stuff, especially that sequence where they're on the couch it did feel to me very scripted. Um, I, I just, there was never a point where I believed that that was like coming off the top of either of their heads. I'm no. like, mm, yeah. this is just like what I think. And there's also a, like earlier in that scene after she's lost the baby and she's talking to him about like the, her mother and how her mother like made them clip the wings of the doves, which comes in so well in the last, like one of the last scenes of the series where she has to then clip the wings. Um, That monologue I enjoyed, although, again, it felt a little bit stilted at times. Um, But then instead of, like, responding to her, he then just goes on his own monologue. And it just felt really weird to me. I was like, if I was in this vulnerable position and, like, I was with somebody I really cared about and I just told this, like, devastating story relating back to, like, this trauma I'm experiencing. And then they kind of, like didn't respond to it and then just told me about their trauma i would be like okay uh, right not the time and place but it just comes across like that's great my turn yeah that's i and i feel like that's what those scenes with the two of those those characters felt like to me is kind of like them just like taking turns monologuing and it it was well written i think in like novel form or even in like maybe like a play it would have worked really well but for me mm-hmm. it just like it just was so long, but that is truly like my only gripe as well. Yeah, I mean to bring it back to the performances, I also you brought him up briefly, but yeah, Hamish Linklater as Father Paul Hill, I think did an amazing job. I had recognized him, and I was like, "Where do I recognize him from?" Because he played, uh, he had a role in um, Legion, the Dan Stevens show. Oh, okay. Um, and then yeah, I just think that he sells it so well because even as you know, like he's immersed, like that fucking angel is not fucking angel that shit's a fucking vampire like (laughs) you still feel for him the whole way i felt because it's like 
he's in the same way that Bev is selling so fucking well, just like that pure, like, you are a fucking bad person. You are fucking rotten to your core. He is selling just like he truly and honestly wants to do good. He wants to help his community. He wants to like lift them up and give them this amazing gift that he truly thinks that God just, you know, bestowed upon him. He's going about it in the wrong way, but he is just like a wonderful arc as well because at no point are we like, oh, he's gone to the dark side in the sense of like, he believe he like knows it's evil and he's still doing it. He truly is like, no, 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 no. I know what it looks like. You guys just don't get it. And just like believe in me as you would believe in God and your faith. And I'm I'm gonna promise you. And you're just like, no, Pastor, please. <laughs> and then yeah, you have that devastating moment at the end when they have the huge reveal, which is another actress I wanted to bring up, which is um, Annabeth Gish, who plays um, Robert Longstreet's wife in Hill House. She's the female caretaker that comes sometimes. Um, I was saying this to you, Alex. She looked so much like my mother in this. Mm-hmm. I haven't said this to my mother yet, but it, I didn't notice it at first. And then, like, that episode where I feel like we're seeing a bunch of her, it was, like, episode, like, five or some shit. I don't even remember what it was. I remember, like, the whole time, like, having an out-of-body experience, <laughs> not even exaggerating, because I was like, this is literally what my mother looks like. And I'm not talking, like, they have a similar haircut. Like, I was like, everything about this woman looks like my mother. Like, it literally looks like my mother is on the TV screen, and it's freaking me the fuck out. But she also gave an incredible performance, and we find out that her aging dying mother who because she's been visited by the pastor and has been getting the communion you know in her little sick bed at home who is now suddenly becoming younger and more youthful was the pastor's like secret lover mm-hmm. and she's the daughter of the pastor and like it's this horrible devastating thing at the end where like she gets I loved her character and she's like fighting and doing the right thing and then of course she fucking dies she gets shot down the ending's yeah. brutal because like truly it nobody was. really makes it and then two people make it that's it and it's right after, and it's, like, just as he's, like, coming to terms with the fact that, like, his whole, his daughter has grown up. She's, in like, an adult woman, like, in her, like, 30s, maybe even 40s now. And he had no relationship with her mm. other than, like, being the town pastor. Like, and now it's too fucking late because, like, everything he's done unintentionally has brought, like, death and destruction. It's just fucking devastating. Well, but and, it's devastating in a way that, like, is so pleasing to yeah, me. And especially because of the... You learn in the end of the show that, I mean, the entire reason that he brought the angel back was for them, was for his daughter and the woman he was with that he loves because he wanted them to all be together and have, like, their life, like, have have another chance at it. And instead, he just kills everybody. Um, It's, yeah, I, I think, you know, the revelation at the end where he kind of has that full circle moment where he realizes what he's done and the damage that he's caused and the fact that he kind of like lets the church burn and he leaves it and he goes with them instead to his death it's so powerful it's that's why i like him so much as a character because he could have been a bev and he could have been like exactly you know gone down with the boat but he didn't he was like i yeah this was wrong i i made a big mistake and i'm so sorry about it it's like a perfect redemption arc because it is even though, because that's also a great, that whole fucking sequence of, like, now we're fully on board with, like, they're not going to say vampire, but, like, because they don't think that they're vampires, but we know they're vampires. And they're going to burn in the sunlight. They got to get inside, but they have the rec center, but only certain people are going to be allowed in because, you know, the true, like, you know, pure blood or the fuck they are. 
And then they burn that down too. So there's no, they've burned the boats, they've burned everything. There is no shelter and the sun is coming up. So you know at this point, everybody that's a vampire, good or bad, is dying. They're mm-hmm. not going to make it. Um, and, and yeah, it's just like a, such a perfect redemption moment because it's just like, just like sitting there with them and knowing. And I, this brings me back to a huge thing I was thinking the whole time I was watching. Which Mike Flanagan, for those who are familiar with his work, we've talked about him a bunch on this podcast. Um, he has done several Stephen King adaptations. He did Doctor Sleep. He did Gerald's Game. I feel like I'm missing one, but maybe not. I think he has another one that's coming up that he's going to do. I think those are his only two so far. Um, but I truly believe, like I've never so- seen somebody perfectly. I feel like do a Stephen King adaptation like Mike Flanagan. Even when he's not doing a Stephen King adaptation, so much of this feels so Stephen King influenced, which I'm not shocked about. I think there's a moment at the beginning when, um, what's his name? Oh my God. The way that I'm, I can't remember a fucking single actor's name. Uh, Henry Thomas, the dad, is like sitting and they're waiting for a call from their son who's getting out of jail and he's going to come back to the little island. He's like reading a Stephen King book. I don't remember which one it is. Yeah. Um, but like so much of this story, like, you know, from the the small town kind of element then you mm-hmm. have you know the classic you know the real monster really underneath it all is other people it's your neighbor it's the way that you know the people in the community treat each other very much like needful things um there's obvious comparisons you can draw to this between um something like silver bullet with the priest being the monster or um salem's lot with like mm-hmm. the vampire um mm-hmm. I already said this, but, like, Bev being the town bitch and, like, you know, turning everybody against the non-believers, very, like, Miss uh, Carmody in the mist. But it's just, like, it just was so, it was so crazy to me that I was, like, the way that Mike Flanagan with Midnight Mass just created one of the fucking best Stephen King works ever put to (laughs) screen, and it's not even a Stephen King work. Like, it's better than, like, I feel like half of the fucking Stephen King adaptations we've gotten in the last, like, ten years. And this is saying as someone that loves Stephen King. Like, I do. Um, He, and it's, what it is, okay, you know what this is? Because I think we talked about this briefly. This is what Castle Rock wishes that it was. Yeah, seriously. Because Castle Rock, for those of you who are not familiar, is a show that, like, the whole point is, like, it's supposed to take place in a Stephen King universe, so there's references to multiple of his works, and the two seasons they have, they kind of combine different stories and characters, but it's Mm -hmm. not based on one singular work, which when they were pitching this and it was coming out, I was like, oh, I'm gonna fucking eat this shit up! They got Bill Skarsgård in this bitch, like, fuck yes. And then it was just kind of a hot-ass mess, and it never clicked, and it it never worked for me, you know, maybe it worked for some people. This, once again... Pulling truly other than, like, vague inspiration is not based on any Stephen King work. It's an original idea of Mike Flanagan's. Best Stephen King work I've seen in so long. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, it's very clear that he's been influenced in a lot of different ways by him and I'm sure by a lot of other horror writers and directors. Um, yeah. But he, but yet he still has, like, very much his own signature. Like, I can watch anything Mike Flanagan and just immediately know it's Mike Flanagan. I mean, oh, yeah. even just visually, like, he loves to do the glowing eyes I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, he loves his monologues. He loves to... I mean, he has a sim, the same cast a lot of the time. Um, but very briefly, just to go back to what we were talking about, how Father Paul, a.k.a. Monsignor Pruitt, had, like, such a great redemptive arc. Mm-hmm. I feel like, overall, everybody had such an incredible redemption at the end, except for Bev. Because yeah. I think the most powerful part of the show for me was having to watch her 
be a fucking vicious monster the whole season. And then in their last moments, when everybody's preparing for the sun to rise, you know, Father Paul is with his, the love of his life and they're just sitting on a, on a fucking bridge with their deceased daughter, just like watching the sunrise, waiting to go together. Everybody else in town is like together singing religious songs and Bev is by herself on the beach desperately digging into the sand trying in whatever way she can to avoid going to in her mind heaven she's so desperate to not die and to go to the afterlife that she believes so deeply exists and yet she's doing everything that she can to not not be there and i think it's also very um you know very justified that she has to do it while next to the sheriff and his son who are also praying to Allah and she's like you know has just called him a fucking terrorist and now she has to be there in the same space as them and bye you don't you you don't all of your faith and all of the preaching that you've done has not saved you from this moment well to sum it up in one word it perfectly paints it's what I think is great about that moment of seeing her as you said by herself like literally fucking digging a hole with her hands Mm -hmm. in the sand where you're like girl you look embarrassing (laughs) like that is not gonna save you is the word that I think it might escape us as you're watching through the series because you're just so angry with her Mm -hmm. and you're just like oh she's so nasty she's so evil she's so mean at her core Bev and people like her she's a coward oh yeah and it's exactly what that scene shows like if if you were to sum it one word it's cowardice because as you're saying like everybody else says we made this bed for better or for worse it's done. And you know what? Like, either because I got, you know, taken against my will and attacked and turned into one of these things. Like, obviously, they're innocents. And then the people that did it are like, wow, I, I see now. Like, I can't even believe that we've done this. Like, mm-hmm. how do we so blindly go along with this? And now we must pay. Now we must meet our creator if that's what's going to happen or whatever. And yeah, coming together in those last moments, once again, as a community that they once were before this religion, you know, or this evil masquerading as religion destroyed them. And Bev isn't because she's a fucking coward. And she's one of those, and it's so perfect because as you're saying, it's like, you know, in the fucking um, church when they're making everybody drink the rat poison and they come in the back room and who's hiding in the back room from everybody mm-hmm. is Bev because she knows that the second these people get turned out there they're gonna kill everybody else they're gonna yeah. eat everybody else and she doesn't want that like and it's like Bev but you're preaching to all these people that like this is God's way this is what the angel is telling us to do if you don't do this you're a non-believer and you will suffer Meanwhile, she's hiding in the back. And then there's that awesome moment where they shoot her. They're yeah, like, shut so the fuck good. up. You know she's going to get back up again. You're like, damn it. But it is just like satisfying to like, be like, shut up, bitch. And like, just mm-hmm. like take her out. But no, I think it is so perfect, those last moments. And then you have, I think it was only the two kids that survived. The, yeah. the girl is the wheelchair user and um, the, Riley's brother. Riley's brother, yes. And they're out on the only remaining boat. It's like a little paddle boat. And they're just watching everything burned they're seeing like the vampire trying to fly away but it's like wings are burned and they have holes in it it's not gonna work it's gonna die and then it's just like kind of this silence of just like watching everything and I think that's also another like idea of this of just like the older generations like and how they like not to blame everything on them but like also yes (laughs) um you know destroying everything for these young kids like that was their whole life they they didn't know a life beyond the island 
And now they're watching everyone they knew, every everything they knew, burn up, destroyed. And it's just them sitting in silence. And then, if I'm correct, it ends with her saying something like, I can't feel my legs. Yeah. Because the effects of whether it be because it's been so long since she's taken communion slash because the vamp the head vampire yeah, Bernie, I think that's logic, what it is. has died all of the quote-unquote like magic and miracles that it caused are fading and there's and the great part about it is there's this serenity to it we're like yes she was put she was paralyzed because of a horrible accident but there's almost this like this sense of like relief that it's going back to what she knows, which I appreciate to a little bit because I think it is, it's a dangerous line to toe sometimes because when you put um, any person with disabilities or you're portraying a person with disabilities in your show, sometimes it's very easy, especially because it's usually made by able-bodied people, to paint it in a way where it's like, oh, like look at how positive they are despite their situation, yeah. where it's like, you don't want to paint someone who has a disability, whether they were born with it or not, as like, oh, they suffer with that. There are a lot of people who are part of the disabled community that, like, they own it. They don't see it as a disability. It's just who they are, um, which I still say to this day, one of, if not the most important class I took while I was at college was disability in the media, where, not that I'm in any way an expert, but where we learned about all of this, and you really, it's eye-opening for somebody who is able-bodied, who doesn't really know anything about this. Um... But I, I appreciate it. I don't really know that it was necessarily on purpose, but that, like, yes, she wasn't born a wheelchair user. She wasn't born paraplegic. She was put in this because of a horrible accident. But I I appreciate at the end that it wasn't, like, on top of every other horrible thing that's happening, the way she's saying, like, oh, shit, I can't feel my legs again is, like, kind of like this, like, oh, on top of everything else, it can't right. get any worse. It is this, like, strange sense of relief of, like, Back to what her life is. The normalcy for her life after the accident did become that. Um, which something I thought was always interesting that we learned in the class was like people like um, Christopher Reeves, the original like Superman, mm-hmm. when he was paralyzed after the horrible like equestrian accident or whatever. And then like he kind of became this like spokesman because he was a huge celebrity for people with disabilities. Um, but it was unfortunate because because he wasn't someone that was born with disabilities and lived with it his whole life. It was kind of something that happened to him, and it was like, oh, this tragic, horrible thing. Not to say that it wasn't, but, you know, at the same time, then it was kind of like every time he was talking, like, it was like some famous commercial where, like, they used CGI to make him walk again or whatever. Fuck. And it was kind of like this, like, oh, what a miracle that would be, where it is just like, it isn't this horrible, you know, cursed life to be in a wheelchair. Yeah. Like... So I guess, you know, that's kind of a tangent, not really what this is talking about, but it is something that I did think about. And now, ever since then, like when I think about stuff we talked about in our uh, New Year's Eve special last year, movies like Run, where they do use an actual wheelchair user, and I think that's amazing, and they don't paint her as a victim because she's in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Like, she's fucking going toe-to-toe with Sarah Paulson, it doesn't even fucking matter. Um, Yeah, I think it's really important to not paint characters who are differently abled than the rest of the characters as lesser than because they're not in any way they just they just have a difference in the way that they move or that they live their day-to-day life there doesn't mean that they are any less anything than anybody else and so to yeah to have it be like it's this beautiful incredible miracle that like now she's better and like is she though is she better off having the ability to walk but having everybody around her be fucking turned into blood-sucking vampires um yeah. no probably not yeah i mean 
point blank period. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a topic that I, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know how to frame it, but like, it's something that like I'm not an expert on, and but I genuinely would encourage people to like do research on it. There's so many movies that like use mm-hmm. this. Like one of my favorite movies we learned about in our class, um, Scent of a Woman with Al Pacino. He plays a blind man, and you know, there's many stereotypes that are used with people with disabilities in film, like being rageful because of the disability that's been put on them. And it's just like really interesting. And I think it's something that's very important just with other topics for different communities that are marginalized or whatever to educate yourself on it so that, you know, you're, you're more aware, you're more, you know, educated, but as I said, I'm not an expert. So, you know, don't take everything I'm saying here as like, you know, an expert opinion. Um, but anyways, off of that tangent, um, the only other thing that I really wanted to say was something that I loved, which even from the beginning when it was just the episodes where I was like kind of waiting for stuff to get going, was the setting. I mean, in general, in most things, setting in story is very important. Setting in horror is very important. And something about um, kind of like a small coastal town slash island as a horror setting works for me it's so perfectly. It's like kind of like warms my heart in a weird like disturbed way like I think of shit like Jaws or Dead and Buried or even The Fog which I'm not sorry this is blasphemous I'm not particularly a huge fan of John Carpenter's The Fog I like the idea of it more than the actual execution um but just like the idea of like you're so isolated especially if you're on an island like you're literally on a small piece of land completely surrounded by water and now we're going to unleash like some evil on that and you're um, and you're more trapped in it and it really works especially if you're trying to do the Stephen King small town community thing um it's just like it creates the perfect suffocating environment and then when you throw in something like Mike Flanagan is doing like the church um which to some people as we've spoken about early in the episode can feel like a suffocating entity or you throw in the idea of a spreading quote-unquote disease which they kind of treat this vampirism as um it just, I feel like it perfectly captures that sense that the characters have of, like, I'm never going to escape the town that I'm from mm. because of, like, how isolated the setting is. Like, so whenever you unleash evil on that, it's just so much more. It's like being in a fucking shark cage and they lower you down and you're trapped in there with the fucking sharks. That's yeah. what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with everything you said. I mean, I think having a setting like an island where the only way that you can get off of the island is by boat just in general is scary because it it is more isolating it is cut off from the rest of society but I also think it works because you know it's supposed to be this like quiet safe community where like bad things don't happen the sheriff says in one of the last episodes he doesn't even carry a gun because why would he nothing happens here and I think the appeal to so many people to move to a place like that like I mean, around here, it's like Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. I mean, I know a lot of people who live on those islands and like, it's very like privileged. It's very beautiful and it's usually pretty peaceful because you're away from the hustle and bustle of the city. I mean, the population is a lot less. So I think taking a setting where it it, it does feel inherently very safe and like quiet and like you don't have to worry about anything and then making it scary just adds to it. It's very similar to like, why I find home invasion films to be so frightening because this is my home. This is where I can let my guard down, where I can feel comfortable. And if somebody comes into it and disturbs it, then like, where can I be that I 
don't have to be afraid. And I think on top of the island, I mean, using the church in that same way as that vehicle, because for all of these people, that is their safe haven. And that is why Joe goes there to go talk to the pastor before he dies. That's why Riley goes there. I mean, really, Riley goes there to confront him about lying to him. But like every time that these people are dying, it's because they are going to the church, to the place that is supposed to be safe, a place that they should be able to like be and not have to ha- worry about anything. And that's the place where all of the mayhem and chaos is happening. So, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the setting is used beautifully. I love the, um, I don't really remember too well, but there's like another island off of it or somewhere like that they can row to that's like filled yeah, with cats. Yeah, like the stray cats are. That yeah. I was fucking obsessed with. I mean, I in addition to the monologues, I will say my only other gripe of, of this show, and I have to say it because I would be, I would be mad at myself if I forgot to, um, is how much animal death there is in the first couple episodes. I understand kind of why it was done, but I also don't think that any of it was necessary. I mean, I think, because, okay, I mean, and this is all spoilers anyway, but the, the first episode ends with all of the cats from that other island washing up dead on shore, which... Right. I'm going to assume was the vampire feeding off the cats. Yeah. Don't really think that was necessary at all. I don't think that that really added anything. I think if you took that out, it would kind of still be the same plot. And in the same vein, Bev poisoning the dog, which was so brutal because having to watch Joe Colley scream and cry when he finds his dog was so heartbreaking. And I just like, I, I already hated Bev. I didn't need to see her kill an innocent dog to make me hate her. It's just like, you, you're already doing that. I don't need these things. And I mean, like, it just comes back in general. So like, I don't typically like when horror or anything, any other genre kill an animal when it's not like absolutely necessary. And I didn't feel like any of the animal deaths on this show really added anything to the plot. I mean, I think if you take them out, it would have been almost the same show. Yeah, I agree to a certain degree. I mean, if I were to pick between the two, one that like, I don't know, because it's one of the things that's like when I really think about it, I'm like, I get the the workings of like why we chose to do such a thing. Like the cat thing of like, just the creepy element of like in general, like an island where it's a bunch of stray cats, where I'm sure when you go in the daytime, lovely. You go at night and it is just like that element of the glowing eye thing, like through the bushes and then like establishing that like there is a creature loose and we can't have it killing people right away. Because that would jump too far into the story. So it's got to eat on something until then. And of course then you get the horrifying visual of just like a sea full of like, you know, cats on the shore. Which, but I also get the idea of like, you know, it could have been anything. At the end of the day, but it also most like, likely would have been an animal. In the next like, episode, you see the angel take a, a boy and kill him. And it's like, if you're going to jump that quickly to him taking humans, I didn't need the cats. Yeah, that's fair. And even the dog thing is just like... Of the two, I feel like the dog felt less necessary to me. Because as you're saying, like, Bev is already, we get it, she's evil. But again, I think it's because it's like, well, we're establishing that Bev has access to the poison, which is going to come in handy later. Um, You know, then we also kind of are establishing that, like, the extremes that this woman that tries to present herself as so saintly will go to, to, like, create the perfect, idyllic, you know, in God's image community that she wants, and this man and his mutt aren't a part of that. So she can't overtly kill him yet, but she can take care of his dog and, like, you know, won't get caught. So I get it, but yeah, once again, it's just, like, and of course, we're biased. I mean, there are definitely movies, I think, in TV films that more overtly kill animals to a point where you're like 
quite literally what was the idea behind mm-hmm. that. Like, literally, it was just to be mean. Where this doesn't feel like it's to be mean, I see the story purpose. But yeah. but I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, but you could have gotten the same purpose maybe if you subbed in blank instead of dead cats. Or blank yeah. instead of killing the dog. But I feel like at that point, at least speaking for me personally, that's just me getting very picky. I do think that it also adds to the layers of grief that Joe is dealing with when yes. really the only person that he has is his dog. And mm-hmm. then that, when that's taken from him, he is completely alone and all he has is his beer. And like, I understand that. I, I do see why it was done. I just personally, because I don't want to see that, I think it's it's just upsetting to me in a way that yeah. I don't enjoy. I wish that it was done in a different way, but like... You know, I get it. I just will not rewatch that scene ever, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's about it. I mean, there's there's so much to talk about in the show. We could go fucking character by character, fucking episode by episode. It would just take too long. Um, and I want it to be stated, y'all, that I'm gonna have a confession here. I um, if I feel a little scatterbrained in this episode, it's because your girl forgot that we were recording this today. <laughs> so she just hopped on and just went for it. And I think you know what, you get what you get. But, um, yeah, that's Midnight Mass. Uh, if for some reason you've listened to all of this and you haven't watched, uh, it is streaming on Netflix. If you watched it and forgot where it's streaming and you want to revisit it, it's on Netflix. Um, it just, you know, continues to make me a huge fan of Mike Flanagan. I have been saying for a while he's my current, like, favorite working director right now. Me too. Um, even with Beyond Horror, like, you know, he mainly pretty much does horror, but... Still, like, nobody even that doesn't do horror comes close to, like, what he's making in my mind to me. Um, It makes me so excited for the films he's got coming up, for the shows he's got coming up. As I said, this motherfucker stays working, and I stay happy about it. Um, And, yeah, did you have any closing thoughts on the vampire church show? I mean, I think it's... I mean, it's like you said to me when I was watching it that I just needed to trust the process because not that I was doubting his ability because the first few episodes are good in their own sense, but like none of them had struck me quite like Hill House did off Mm -hmm. the bat. And so I was kind of like, okay, am I going to be underwhelmed by this show? Because I keep hearing everybody saying how it's like the greatest thing they've ever seen. And, you know, I do think that he is so talented at like giving you tiny, tiny pieces and then tying them all back together. Like, it always feels completed by the end. Like, there's never really any film or TV show I've seen that he's made where I'm like, but you didn't explain that. But that's left up in the air. Like, he really, it's so thorough. And, you know, I think it's a slow burn, and then it really pays off in the end in fucking spades. And it's, the last two episodes are so heavy. I watched them back to back because I was like, I need to finish the show so we can do our episode. But, like, after watching the first episode, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to put on this last episode now because that was so emotionally exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I have to do another one. And I know it's going to be even fucking worse. So, you know, I do recommend, obviously. um, But, you know, if you haven't seen it, just go in knowing that, you know, it's going to be a slow build to some chaos and then your fucking heart's gonna get ripped out of your yeah. chest so but i mean that's really just the flanagan way isn't it that's what you sign up for dude i just remembered that i watched it all one day the way oh my god i can't believe you did that i know it was i was 
literally prefacing this, I was literally so depressed that I woke up and I was like, I'm not going to do anything today. I'm just going to watch the show. Not even, I wasn't even like, I'm going to watch the whole thing. I was like, I'm just going to watch so I don't want to watch anymore, which of course I never get to a point where I do want to watch. I didn't even binge Hill House or fucking Bly Manor like that. And so when I emerged from my room when it was done, I was like <laughs> a husk of a woman. I was like, what? Um, but I guess closing question, we'll, we'll close on this. Sure. Now that we've both obviously seen um, Hill House, Bly Manor, mm. Midnight Mass, what is your ranking from best, or we'll say favorite to least favorite, because we liked all three of them. Um, one, two, three. What do they rank for you? Easy peasy for me. Hill House one, Midnight Mass two, Bly Manor three. Same. We're on the same page. Yeah. I like Bly Manor. It just didn't have the, I don't know, it didn't have the scares for me, other than Lady in the, the Lake. Mm-hmm. She was fucking terrifying. What? Y'all, I'm saying the same with Alex, and that's after I fucking publicly embarrassed myself about Oliver Jackson Cohen and Blind Man. That's true. So that's how you know how fucking good Midnight Mass is, and I'm willing to look past that and put Midnight Mass above Blind Manor. <laughs> I mean, nothing will ever top Hill House, but that's how you know. That's my stamp of approval. And on that note, um, this is our last little our little treat for October. We will see you guys, or rather, you'll listen to us talk again in November for our main episode. It's a really fun one as we try to make all of them. Um, Have a lovely Halloween. Have a lovely start to your November uh, as we head into the end of the year. And as always, keep it creepy. Bye, guys. Bye.